You know, when, when I was young, like many of you, I'm sure, our family would um, go to the beach from time to time. And I have a lot of family in Houston, Texas, so we'd drive to Galveston, which is just a small island southeast of Houston, not far, maybe 45 minutes or so. Of course, we'd get to the beach, and we'd get out in the water as kids, and we'd play, and then after a while, we'd want to come back to the shore, you know, where where the the beach spot was, where our blanket was, where the towels were, where, most importantly, the snacks were. And we would always turn around, expecting the beach spot to be directly behind us, but it never was. We had run out into the water played, and when we turned around, the beach spot was way over there. What happened? Well, we drifted. Combination of the waves and the wind and and the activity, we had drifted down, leaving our beach spot way over there. And you know, that's an interesting picture of what can happen in our Christian walk, We can be all about God. We can be passionately pursuing him. And then slowly, without even recognizing it at times, we can drift. Our passion can wane. Before we know it, we feel like, and I stress that term, feel like. We feel like God is way over there. I don't feel close to him. I don't feel his presence. Why? Because he's drifted? Oh, no. I've drifted. Our text today comes right after the greatest commandment. And that's significant in opening up what Jesus is doing here because we talked about the greatest commandment. And Jesus said last week, said the greatest commandment, it's, it's not reading your Bible. It's not singing worship songs. It's not making sacrifices. The greatest commandment is to love God with your all. Love God and love people. But what happens, what does it look like when we don't? And Jesus is telling the people and his disciples what that looks like, what it looks like when the scribes didn't love God and didn't love people. What happens when we don't love God and people? Well, we drift We spiritually drift. Slowly the focus becomes more centered around ourselves and not on God. My friends, I'm here to tell you there's good news in this because there are warning signs, warning signs that we, if we train ourselves, we can pick up on to let us know we're drifting. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. We're going to wrap up chapter 12 today. We have been in chapter 12 for five weeks. We're going to wrap it up today. We've been unpacking a lot of treasure that's in this chapter. We've seen Jesus work during what we've called the Jerusalem ministry. He told a parable at the beginning of this chapter that identified the wickedness of the religious leaders. He had been challenged three times with questions by different religious groups. And now we wrap up the chapter with three specific specific teachings of Jesus himself. It's Jesus' turn to talk. The religious leaders in the crowd, they're out of questions. And it's Jesus' turn to talk. And he's going to start off this morning with a question 
for them. And what he's going to be doing here is pointing out the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. So a good way to summarize our passage this morning is this. The great commandment not being lived out. And that's happening with the scribes and the religious leaders in Jesus' day. And it happens, of course, in the world around us. But my friends, we can drift as Christians and it can happen with us as well. Jesus said to love God and love people, that's the greatest commandment. What happens when that's not being lived out? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So this is what I offer you this morning, three signs that our love is drifting away from God and others. Three signs that we can identify in ourselves that our love for God might be drifting. So here's your first sign. Here's your point this morning. What are the signs that we're drifting from our love for God and people? Point number one. Settling for an incomplete understanding of Christ and his word. Settling for an incomplete understanding of Christ and his word. When we come to the text in verse 35, we see that Jesus is teaching. He's in the temple, remember, and it's his turn to pose a question. And he says in verse 35, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David. Now, I just want to stop there and just deal with that verse for a couple of moments. What is Jesus saying here? What is he saying about the scribes? Now, just by way of reminder, the scribes were the teachers of the law. They were the legal experts. They were lawyers, and they taught that Christ was the son, the Christ, the one they were expecting. They taught that he was the son of David. In other words, they were teaching... That Christ, and by the way, that word Christ, just by way of reminder, it means anointed one. It was the term referred to as the Messiah. They were, he was the one they were expecting to come, and they were teaching that he was going to come, he was going to descend through the line of David, through the line of the kings. That's what they taught. Now, that teaching originated in 2 Samuel 7. God tells David that after him, a son will come, who builds the temple, and that was Solomon. King Solomon, David's son, took the throne after David died, and he built the temple that is the first temple of the Lord. But then in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Lord goes on to tell David this in verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is what theologians call the Davidic covenant. God made a covenant with David that his throne, his kingdom, will be established forever. And then that idea is repeated often throughout the prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Hosea, all of them mention the one who is to come and to rule from the line of David. I'll just share one example with you from Isaiah 11.1. 1. It reads like this. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now that identification, a shoot from the stump of Jesse, that points to the line of David, because Jesse was David's father. So the scribes taught that the Christ, the Messiah, was to come from the line of David. And guess what? They were right. They were right about this. 
That was accurate. That was scriptural. However, it was incomplete. It was correct, but it was incomplete. It was not the full picture. See, they were expecting a descendant from the line of David. They were expecting a man and only a man. But Jesus goes on to say this in verse 36 of Mark 12. He said, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls himself, David calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. So Jesus is posing this question. How can David call the Messiah my Lord? He's quoting here, Jesus is quoting here from Psalm 110, which begins this way. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. See, it doesn't say the Lord said to my king. It doesn't say the Lord said to me. It says the Lord said to my Lord. Now, to help us here, we need to differentiate between the word Lord and the word Lord. Believe it or not, there is a difference. If you were to look this up, you'd probably see in your Bibles that the first Lord in Psalm 110.1 is all caps, L-O-R-D, all caps. That identification, in most Bibles, when they translate Lord, L-O-T-R, all capitals, that's the name Yahweh. It's the name for God. The second Lord is capital L, lowercase o-r-d. And that's the word Adonai or Adoni. And it means Lord in the sense of Lord or Master. So Jesus comes along here in verse 12, and he teaches that Psalm 110.1 is a reference to the Messiah. That wasn't taught previously. Jesus comes along and says, this is talking about the Messiah, that Yahweh, God, is talking to the Messiah. Jesus is asking, how can David call the Christ, the Messiah, Lord? How can he say the Lord said to my Lord? How can he say that? Because if you think about it, that's not a term that an elder uses for a younger. It'd be like your boss coming to you and saying, hey, boss, Or it'd be like you going to your children and say, hey, dad, hey, mom. It's out of order. You could go so far as to say that's inappropriate. But Jesus is saying here that David the king is calling Christ the Messiah, my Lord. The Lord Yahweh said to my Lord, the Messiah. And by the way, did you catch that Jesus confirmed that David was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Did you catch that? Jesus said, David himself said, in the Holy Spirit. David was writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he wrote Psalm 110. But he puts this question to them, and there's no answer. Now, we, hear, we see here that, that the throng, the crowd, the greater crowd, they heard him gladly. They loved his teaching. He puts out a question. First of all, remember, he has answered all the questions that are put to him. Then he puts out a question, and no one can answer him. And the crowd is thinking, right on. They love it. Now, we're not told if the Herodians, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribe from last week, we're not told if they stuck around for this question. Presumably they had. We're not exactly sure. But however, no one can answer him. No one can provide an answer to his 
riddle, you might call it. But there is an answer. There is an answer to what Jesus is saying here. Jesus says, David himself calls him, the Messiah, Lord. So how is he his son? And the answer is, the Christ can be both David's son and be called Lord by David only if the Christ is divine. See, the answer is yes, the Messiah does come through the line of David. The scribes got that right. They taught that truly. He is a human, but that's incomplete. He's also divine. The Christ is a man, but he's not just a man. He is also God. He existed before David, and he comes through the line of David, and that's how David can say, that's how he can be both David's son and David can call him my Lord. Now, this double nature of Jesus is what theologians call the hypostatic union. And that's just a fancy word to say that Jesus had two natures. He was human and he was divine. He is the man and God. He is the God-man. And that's the answer to Jesus' riddle. That's how David, he can be David's son and be called Lord by David is he is God and man. So by posing this riddle, Jesus is pointing out that the religious leader's understanding of the Messiah is incomplete. It wasn't incorrect, but it was incomplete. Now, many of you probably remember the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. In that movie, you'll remember, Indiana Jones is looking for the Ark of the Covenant, and he has as his guide a medallion. And there's inscription on both sides of the medallion that give directions where to dig for the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the bad guys, the Nazis, also had a medallion, but it only had inscription on one side. They only had half the information. Their information was incomplete, and as a result, they were digging in the wrong place. See, the religious leaders of Jesus' day did not have the full picture of the Messiah, and that's a problem. Because if your understanding of the Messiah is incomplete, then you misunderstand who he is. And my friends, that is devastating. And if you've come to the understanding that Jesus was just a man or just a prophet or just a good teacher or just someone to be admired, then your information about Jesus is incomplete and that will affect your eternal destiny. So if that's you this morning, I beg of you to consider the full truth of Jesus, that he is God and he is man. And if you receive him as your Lord and Savior, you will be saved. I urge you, if that's you this morning, if your information on Jesus is incomplete. However, my fellow believers, this is true of us. It is true of us that our information about Jesus is incomplete. We lack the full understanding. Why? Because we're limited. Because we're human. Because we're frail. Even Christians who've received Christ as Lord and Savior do not have a full and complete understanding of Jesus. We don't. And so my charge to you is not to settle for what we do know. Because if we settle for what we do know about Jesus, that's a sign that we are drifting away. 
He said last week, we are to love him with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. So to settle for what limited knowledge we have is to not love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So what is the answer? Well, if one sign that we are drifting away from our commitment to God is that we're settling for an incomplete understanding of Christ and his word, then the answer is to be this, a lifelong student of God and his word. My challenge to you is to be a lifelong student of God and his word, always learning, never mastering. I had a professor when I was attending Moody Bible Institute, he was the professor of Koine Greek, the language of the New Testament. And he told us one time, he said, you will always be learning Greek, always learning and never mastering. That was really encouraging for him to tell us that. But I have since come to learn, understand what he means. There's always something to learn. There's always something to learn about the Greek language. And my brothers and my sisters there is always something to learn about our Savior and Lord. In fact, you can be in a lifelong student of Jesus Christ here on earth, and when you enter into eternity, you will still be learning about him. You will still be seeing new things about him. His glory will be revealed to us forever and ever and ever. So what do we do with this point? What do we walk away with? I'd like to give you a few points of application. Number one, don't settle for what you've learned about Christ and his word. Don't settle for it. Don't think you've come to a good, fair enough point, a good enough point, that you don't really need to learn anymore. You've got what you need. Don't come to that point. We can never know enough about God. We can always learn more. We can always make deeper connections. We can always come to a broader and deeper understanding of who God is. You will never arrive at mastering God, ever. And there will always be something to learn. So don't settle for what you've learned about Christ in his word. Always dig deeper. You could take one verse and chew on it the rest of your life. Number two, don't get sucked into bad teaching. There is a lot of Christianese junk out there in the world. You know, the book of 1 Timothy the whole premise of the book of 1 Timothy is that Paul is exhorting Timothy to guard the church against false doctrine. Paul writes to Timothy in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. In other words, keep the main thing the main thing. Keep the gospel the gospel and don't succumb to bad theology. Don't get off track with the gospel. Don't fall into the trap of bad Bible teaching. And you might ask yourself, okay, how? How do I recognize bad Bible teaching? That's a great question. I looked up an article this week from the Gospel Coalition that pointed this out. Bad theology often equates to bad morality. In other words, when a teacher teaches bad theology, likely it's going to show up somewhere in his or her life. So keep an eye on the person doing the teaching. And I'm including myself here. 
Keep an eye on the person doing the teaching. Keep an eye on their life. I mean, it doesn't mean they're going to be perfect. It doesn't mean they won't make mistakes. Of course they will. But if their teaching is bad, if their theology is bad, it's going to come out in their life. Here's another way to identify bad teaching. Be sure the teaching does not compromise core biblical doctrines. Core biblical doctrines. These would be things like the deity of Jesus, the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith, the inerrancy of Scripture. These are core doctrines. And if you come across any teaching that contradicts any core doctrine, stop listening. Stop reading. Stop studying. Stop watching. Whatever it is, you don't need that junk in your life. Ain't nobody got time for that. And by the way, this is partly the responsibility of the elders. Elders, I include myself here, we are responsible to make sure that the doctrine in our church is sound and the people are receiving good doctrine. So don't be afraid to confront. Don't be afraid to redirect. And church, don't resist when your elders lovingly come alongside you and expose false doctrine in your life. Number three, talk about applications here. Number three, let God's word, God's spirit, and God's people refine you. Let God's word, God's spirit, and God's people refine you. Here's the truth. We all have incomplete information. We all do. To one degree or another, we all have incomplete information. And if we're going to continually be lifelong students of God and his word, then we need to be shaped by his word, his spirit, and his people. We all have been misshaped or misguided by bad theological influences. All of us. And these might come from our upbringing. They might come from poor teachers. They might come from harmful experiences. However they come, they come. So we need to be open to God's refinement. And God does that through his word, his spirit, and his people. I'm just going to be honest with you right now. I am being challenged in some of my theological thinking through what I'm reading these days. And I love it. God is showing me some things that I didn't quite understand about him before. I'm learning and I'm being reshaped in some ways and praise God for the work that he's doing. Let him do that in you. We're talking about three signs that we are drifting away from God. The first was settling for an incomplete understanding of Christ and his word. Here's the second. Serving the Lord with self-centered motives. Second sign that we are drifting is serving the Lord. Yes, serving the Lord, but with self-centered motives. Join me in verse 38. It says, and in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense May long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus continues to teach, and as he's teaching, he warns the people against the scribes, probably right in front of scribes. He warns people. Jesus had moxie. He really did. He points out, first of all, their incomplete understanding, and now he straight up warns the people about the scribes. Why? 
because the scribes were all about appearances. They wanted to be seen. They gloried in the attention of others. They were all about self-exaltation. Look at me. I am holy. I am righteous. I am favored by Yahweh. Self-centered. And Jesus points out here a few things. He points out their long robes. These would have been long linen white robes that were fringed and hung almost to the ground. They distinguished them from others. And it was common culture in that time for the lower social class to greet the higher social class. That's what he's talking about, greetings in the marketplaces. In fact, a scribe would not initiate a greeting with someone of lower class. He wouldn't do it. The lower class person had to initiate the greeting, and they would often do it this way with such titles like rabbi or father or master. The scribes would, of course, get the best seats. There were benches in the synagogues, and these benches were strategically placed so that everyone in the synagogue could see the scribe when they sat there. During times of of feasting and banquets, the scribes were the honored guests. All of it, the point of all of it is this, how much attention one could gain. And this played right into the culture. Don't forget, we're in an honor-shame culture here. Honor is everything. Life is all about obtaining honor and avoiding shame. But then Jesus tells us something that makes it even worse. He says they devour widows' houses. Now, there's some debate on exactly what did Jesus mean, but somehow the scribes would prey upon the vulnerable for their own means. In this day and age, widows would have been the most vulnerable people, and it's likely that scribes may have sponged off their hospitality or perhaps literally could have been cheating widows out of their homes, out of their estates, because they were lawyers and they could have done that. They knew the loopholes in the law. Whatever the case may be, somehow they exploited the most vulnerable instead, greatest commandment, loving the most vulnerable. This time of year, a great illustration of this, I can't help but think of Ebenezer Scrooge. Just like him, right? Exploiting the vulnerable for his own good. But as the story unfolds, what is he doing? He's heaping condemnation against himself. Jesus makes this shocking statement. They will receive the greater condemnation. Those who mistreat the vulnerable, in the scribe's case, teachers of the law, teachers of God's word, they're going to receive the greater condemnation. And by the way, that idea of teachers receiving the greater condemnation, that is repeated elsewhere in Scripture. James 3, 1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. I'll be honest, verses like that scare me. They do. As a teacher of God's word, Jesus is pointing out that teachers of God's word will be judged with greater strictness. He's pointing out here their hypocrisy. They are teachers of God's word, supposedly pious and righteous men, when really they are in it for the attention and what they can sponge off of others. You know, it's interesting. If the first point was an incomplete understanding of Jesus, then the second point really reveals an incomplete understanding of ourselves. This is a 
attention-seeking, self-serving behavior. It's egotistical. It's narcissistic. It puts self at the center of the universe and displaces God as the center of the universe. It views the created thing as greater than the creator. It fails to understand man as a worshiper, not the one to be worshiped. And don't think for a moment that we don't struggle with this 2,000 years later. We do. This is a common struggle of man. We all desire to be the center of our own universe. We all fail to put God first, and instead we put ourselves first. In a podcast, Oprah Winfrey said this, put yourself top of the list. And that's a message we hear a lot. Be true to yourself. And that's exactly what we're seeing here with the religious leaders. They are all about themselves. They are exalting themselves. Their motives are self-centered, and that's exactly the way you and I are bent as well. And this can be true even while doing acts of service for the Lord. We can find ourselves tempted to serve the Lord while stealing his glory. What's the answer? Well, this should be obvious, but I'm going to say it. The opposite of being self-centered is not others-centered, though we might be tempted to think that. No, the opposite of being self-centered is being God-centered. The opposite of being self-centered is being God-centered. Don't exalt yourself. Exalt Christ. Over and over, the Bible tells us to give glory to God. I'll give you a couple of, of examples. Psalm 156 Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Psalm 103.1, praise the Lord my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Psalm 105.1, give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, make known among the nations what he has done, and on and on and on and on. We could go, but the message is clear. Praise the Lord, exalt the Lord, give glory to the Lord. Why? Because he's some needy being who needs our praise? Because God craves our praise out of a weakness? Is that why? You believe it or not, that's a common belief among people today, that God requires praise because he's weak and needy. C.S. Lewis struggled with this. As a 20-something-year-old man, before being saved, he struggled with the idea of God commanding praise in the Bible. He writes this, the miserable idea that God should in any sense need or crave for our worship like a vain woman wanting compliments. Is this why we praise God? Because he craves our attention? No. We praise God for the sole reason of who he is. He is worthy of of our praise. Why is he worthy? Because God is the ultimate supreme being. God is completely and totally unique because there is no one like God. He's not weak and needy. He's the supreme ultimate being. There is nothing and no one greater than God, and so it follows that there is nothing and no one worthy of praise but God. And think about this. We as human beings, we are going to praise something. 
We are idol worshipers. We are going to praise something. People praise things all the time. They praise their spouses. They praise their children. They praise their grandchildren. They praise their appearances, their careers, their hobbies, their houses, their cars, their trophies, their retirement plans, their vacation houses, their cooking, their sports teams, their favorite movies, songs, novels, poems, and their pets. They do. We do. We are creatures of praise. We're going to praise something. So praise the one who's actually worthy of praise. Because there is no other being that even comes close to how marvelous and holy and righteous and good and pure and true and faithful and eternal and who is uber affectionate for you. He loves you. Praise him. Praise him for there is no greater being We are going to praise something. Why not praise the best? By the way, this is one one of our four pillars of the church. Unashamed adoration, lifting high the name of Jesus in worship. Here's another application I want to give you. Be on guard against self-glorifying motives. We all struggle with this. Be on guard against self-glorifying glorifying motives. Note verse 40, he says, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They're making long prayers. Why? So that people will see them. Not because they love God. They did everything they did for the attention of others. And let's face it, we struggle with the same. We're drifting from our love for God when our motives for serving are on ourselves. How many times, let's just be honest, how many times have you done something good, you have served in some way with one eye on what you're doing and one eye on who's watching? I heard a pastor say this week, God cares more about your motives than what you're actually doing. What's the answer? The answer is to repent of the desire to make things about me. Repent and ask God to give a heart that simply wants to serve, that purely wants to serve. And I can hear you, some of you out there saying, I hear you, Ryan. I know what you're talking about. I struggle, though. I struggle to serve God with pure God-honoring motives. My mind is always thinking of others and what they see. Even when I'm truly trying, my mind is still thinking of what others see. Let me answer that by first of all saying, I understand. I fight that battle as well. And let's just be honest, it might be a battle that you and I fight our entire lives. But let me give you some quick thoughts that I hope are helpful. Number one, Acknowledge and repent the motive. When we sense ourselves going to the attention of others and seeking that, acknowledge it to the Lord and repent. God God sees your motives. He already knows. Repent and remember that his sweet forgiveness is always there. Two, let me encourage you, deflect the temptation. When you find your thoughts Seeking out the praise of others, the attention of others, deflect that to God. Just tell yourself no, and in your mind, or even out loud, say to God be the glory. Make that a habit. And three, strive to find your joy in praising Jesus. 
strive to find your joy in praising Jesus. In fact, we are all commanded to take joy in praising Jesus. Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. I'm gonna confess to you, there's a whole sermon in that verse. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. It's a command. Do it, delight, take joy in the Lord. And one of the ways to do that is when we are serving him, we choose to delight in the Lord in that service. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, I don't even have time to go into that part. But think about this. What an amazing admonition with a jaw-dropping promise. Delight yourself in the Lord. Take pleasure in the Lord. Find joy in the Lord. And as you worship him, as you serve him, as you study his word, whatever, make it your joy. You might think, how do I make that my joy? You ask the Holy Spirit to shape your heart to enjoy your Lord. And the more you take joy in the Lord, the less you'll want attention from others because you'll discover that the joy you receive from others is nothing compared to the joy you receive from Christ. C.S. Lewis also said this, fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. To God be the glory. Final point. We're looking at signs that our love for God is drifting. Here's the final one. Giving without, without leaving our comfort zone. Giving without leaving our comfort zone. Look at verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contribute out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. This is both a heartwarming and a heart-wrenching story. I just want to paint the picture for you here of what's going on. Jesus is sitting down opposite the treasury. Don't forget, we're still in the temple here. And within the court of the women, you remember there were different courts to the temple. Within the court of women, there were these large, they call them chauffeur chests. They were shaped like trumpets. And they were used for collecting offerings. People would bring their gold, they'd bring their financial offering, and they would literally throw them into the chests. I know the text there says put, but that word put literally means to throw. They would throw them in these giant chauffeur chests. And you can just imagine as the gold or the silver or whatever was falling into this, it would just clang as it would fall into these chests. And then picture, it's a crowded area. It's always crowded. The temple was always crowded. People are everywhere, and they would hear a particularly loud clang, and they would all turn and acknowledge the offerer. Again, this is just like the second point. It's all about appearances. It says the rich are giving here. They're giving out of their abundance and making sure that people know it. And then up comes this poor widow, and she tosses in two small copper coins tink 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 the text says that they equal about a penny but that's not an American penny okay that's a Roman coin 
It's the smallest of the Roman coins called a quadrant. These coins were the least value of any coin in circulation. She tosses in two small copper coins and Jesus calls his disciples and says, the widow has put in more than all the others. Why? Because she put in all she had, all she had to live on. What signs reveal that we're drifting away from God? Keeping our giving at the level of comfort, of comfortable. Jesus shows that compared to all the others, this widow has given more because she's given everything when all the others have given out of their abundance. See, it's not about how much they're giving that's in question. They're giving out of their abundance. Each of the rich people that are giving here, they can give and relatively remain unaffected by it. They've got a place to lay their head that night. They know where their next meal's coming from. They can give to the treasury, walk down the street, buy some new material to make a new outfit and not even bat an eye. Their comfort level is not affected by their giving. The widow, on the other hand, these two small copper coins was enough to buy a handful of flour. And a handful of flour was enough for one small meal. And she gave it up. And to give out of our comfort zone means we give to God out of love and we rely on him to provide. Do you know what the sacrificial system was meant for in the Old Testament? It was meant for many things, but one thing the sacrificial system was meant for, it was meant to force the people to rely on God. When your livelihood came from your flocks and your herds, to give up one and sacrifice, not to eat it, not to benefit from it, but to burn it, that was a big deal. And that was saying, we need this, but we're going to give to God and rely on him to provide. Please, hear my heart here because I'm not saying go home and give up everything you have. I'm only asking, are you giving within the level of comfort or are you trusting God and giving without the level of comfort? Are you depending on yourself in your giving or are you depending on God? Are you self-reliant in your giving or God-reliant in your giving? When we're self-reliant, it becomes all about us. I mean, you may not be tossing in big sums to the oohs and ahs of other people, but could your giving be challenged just a little bit? Folks, hear me. I'm not after your money. I'm after your sanctification. I'm after your growth as a believer in Jesus. I'm not saying go home, sell everything, and give it to the church. I'm just challenging you to ask yourself, ask the Lord that question. Am I too comfortable in my giving? Could God be nudging you toward more? That's all I'm asking. That's all I'm saying. And I just leave that between you and the Lord. The last words of chapter 12. This is where Jesus ends. He tells them that They've contributed, the rich have contributed out of their abundance. The widow's put in, her, put in out of her poverty. And it ends with these words, all she had to live on. Those final words, all she had to live on, could be literally translated all her life. And that's really how you and I should think about every aspect of our life. 
our money, our time, our skills, our abilities, our families, our houses, everything, we should think about it in the sense that it already belongs to God. It's his, and our attitude should be our whole life, all of it, belongs to God. After all, did he not give all his life? What was Jesus about to do in just a few short days? What event is coming that changed all of history? Jesus followed the plan set by the Father. He's about to give all his life to satisfy the wrath of God and to pay the penalty of death for our sins. He's about to complete the work for which he came. He's about to face the greatest rejection the deepest lost, and the most horrific shame. And even then, he won't drift from the Father's plan one inch. Jesus never waned in his love for the Father. I want to end with one small sentence answering the question, why? And if I'm a saved believer in Jesus Christ, why should I really be concerned with drifting away? Here's my answer to that. Because his knowledge is perfect. His motives are pure. And he truly gave his all. And if that's true, then keep your eyes on your Savior, church, because only that will keep your feet solid, keep your love fresh, and keep you from drifting. Let's pray. God, the greatest command is to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But honestly, we drift from that every single day. Our hearts are so self-centered that we, like the scribes, easily make this life about ourselves. God, forgive us. God, help us to never settle for what we know about you and your word. Help us to serve you with motives that are pure. And help us to give beyond our comfort zone for you and the advancement of your kingdom. Lord, help us not to do these things from a place of mere duty, but a place of love for you and others. Help us to love you. We pray this. In the great name of Jesus, amen.